Thank you, Ted. Appreciate the introduction. Appreciate the kind words. And good morning to everyone. He is risen. Amen. Amen. What a glorious, glorious privilege to be able to declare that, not only on Resurrection Sunday, but hopefully every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we need the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what a blessing to be able to be together today to worship him, to participate in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, now to hear his word. And as we enter into this time of listening to the Lord, I just want to pray. Because again, it is so easy to forget that the voice that we want to hear is not my voice. And the thoughts that we want to be considering are not my thoughts. My voice is not worth listening to. My thoughts are not worth considering. But his are. His are. His thoughts are always worth considering. And his voice is always worth listening to. And so what I want to pray is simply that as we take this time together, that all of us, myself included, that all of us would hear his voice and would consider his thoughts. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much for giving us this time together today. Lord, what a blessing it is to be here as your people and to once again consider and celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. On Friday, Lord, you gave us a wonderful time and you anointed seven speakers to encourage us to once again consider the things, Jesus, that you said from the cross. But this morning, Lord, we want to particularly remember that third and glorious day when the stone was rolled away and some of your followers entered your tomb and you were not there because you had risen from the dead. And all eternity, Lord, is not going to be enough time to rejoice in you and to thank you for this incredible, incredible victory. And right now, Father, we do ask that it would be you who speaks to us. We pray that you would open each of our ears to hear, to be attentive, Lord, to your voice. We are just so excited to, to remember that you are a God who wants us to know you. You want us to understand you. You want us to hear your voice. And so we just pray now that you would do that work in each of our hearts that is needed for us to be attentive to you and to what you want to say. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would continue to move, that you would continue to speak. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want us to look at today is a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have been working our way through the book of Psalms in terms of our corporate Bible reading. And there's a lot of great psalms. There's psalms, of course, that look forward to the resurrection of Christ. I think particularly of Psalm 16, an amazing declaration that Peter uses in his Pentecost sermon to declare the resurrection of Jesus. But today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, a lot of folks, if you're not familiar with it, a lot of folks refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the resurrection chapter. Paul packs in a ton of material in this relatively long chapter, talking first and foremost about the resurrection of Jesus, 
but then talking about, in turn, the resurrection of all believers. And what I want us to do today is I want us to read together the first nine verses and then take some time to go back over those and look a little more carefully at what the Apostle Paul is putting in front of us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading verses 1 to 9. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So let's go back now and look a little bit more carefully at some of the things that the Apostle Paul puts in front of us here. The first thing that he says is he says, I want to remind you. I want to remind you. He's writing to the church in Corinth. This was a church that he had established. This was a church that he was given apostolic authority over. And so even when he was absent from them, he still felt responsibility for them. And we see that in the first and second letters that he wrote to them that are recorded for us in Scripture. And so he says, I want to remind you. And so right there we are challenged to consider what it is that we need to be reminded of. You know, some of us have incredible memories. Some of us, not so much. As I'm getting a little bit older, I find myself getting a bit more forgetful. And things that people say to me looking as if I should have remembered them saying that, I'm like, did you say that? I'm sorry, I forget. And so it's so important that we realize there are certain things that we need to remember. There are certain things that we need to be reminded of. And what is it the Apostle Paul was telling the Corinthians? What is it that he wanted to remind them of? The gospel that he had preached to them. I want to remind you of the gospel that I had preached to you. You see, when Paul was in Corinth, he wasn't there on vacation. He wasn't there on a sightseeing tour. He wasn't there, you know, to explore the ins and outs of the Roman Empire. He was there very clearly for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. That's who he was. And that's why he was in Corinth. And so he's writing them this letter and saying, I want to remind you of this gospel that I preached to you. And how had the Corinthians responded? When Paul was in their city and when he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, how had the Corinthians responded? Well, he says it in, in verse 1. He says, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
So right away, we understand two things about the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared, you have an opportunity to receive it, and you have an opportunity to stand on it. That's what the Corinthians chose to do. When the Apostle Paul was in their midst preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received it and they stood on it. And each one of us has the opportunity to do the same thing. So my first question to each of us is, what are you doing with the gospel? What are you doing with the gospel? Are you receiving it? Are you standing on it? Because that's what the Apostle Paul was reminding the Corinthian believers. He goes on in verse 2. It says, by this gospel, you were saved. So now we see not so much the response that is expected, that we need to receive the gospel, that we need to stand on the gospel, but now we begin to see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Apostle Paul says, by this gospel, you were saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some words in a Bible or on the mouth of a preacher or an evangelist. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. It is the power of God to bring salvation. There's no other message on the planet like it. There's no other doctrine on the planet like it. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. But then there is a condition. He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise... You have believed in vain. Now we know that Jesus never minced words. Jesus never told us simply what we wanted to hear. Well, the Apostle Paul was a true disciple of Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul never wrote the churches simply what they wanted to hear. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, always wrote the churches what they needed to hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bring everyone who receives it and stands on it, has the power to bring salvation. If we hold on to it. If we don't hold on to the message of the gospel, then we have believed in vain. If we don't hold on to the message of the gospel, then we have believed in vain. In vain. And the Apostle Paul was concerned for the Corinthian church. As he was writing this, and particularly as he was writing 2 Corinthians, he wasn't certain. He wasn't certain that they were holding on to the gospel. He was wondering, had he labored in vain? Had he preached in vain? Had they received it? But now, were they letting go of it? So I don't care if you're hearing the gospel for the first time this morning or whether you heard the gospel 50 years ago. It is a daily challenge to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth of it is, there are a lot of influences and forces and rival doctrines 
that are encouraging us to let go. To let go and believe something else. To let go and follow something else. And the Apostle Paul was well aware of that. The Apostle Paul was well aware of that. So the glorious truth of the gospel is it has the power to save. It has the power to save. And we have the opportunity to daily hold on to it. To say, today, I'm holding on to the gospel. Today, I'm holding on to that message that has saved me. Today, I'm holding on to the truth that has been in front of me. Today, that is what I am deciding to do. And if we do that, we will be saved. But of course, some of you may be asking, well, what is the gospel? Even veteran Christians, over the years, sometimes I've asked them, well, well what is the gospel? And oftentimes people kind of look and say, well, it's a word I hear a lot, and I know as a Christian I'm supposed to know what it is, but yeah, I'm not really 100% sure what the gospel is. Well, fortunately, Paul in these verses makes it unmistakably clear what is the message of the gospel. And look again specifically at verse 3, because it was not Paul's invention. And if you read Galatians, he makes that so clear to the Galatian churches. He said, look, what I preached to you was not my own idea. It was not my own thoughts. It was not my own wisdom. Just as we prayed a few minutes earlier, it was given to me. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that Paul invented. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that he personally received from Jesus Christ himself. There were years that Paul was out in the wilderness. We're not exactly sure where, Arabia somewhere, and he was receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he gave to the Corinthians. That's what he gave to the Corinthians. And as a pastor and as a preacher myself, may I never give you anything less or more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, James says that teachers are going to be judged more strictly than others. Why? Because we better get it right. We better get it right. And there are a lot of false teachers out there. There are a lot of false teachings out there. But as elders of this community, we do everything we can to simply present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not our ideas, not our thoughts, not our words, but the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you all can hold us accountable. Absolutely. Hold us accountable. So what is it? What is it that Paul received? What is it that Paul received? What is it that he passed on to the Corinthians? He says, this is of first importance. What? That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. I don't care how many times you've said that. I don't care how many times you've heard that. You can never say that too much. It's of first importance. Christ died died for our sins. Each one of us is a sinner. Each one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us have walked in disobedience and rebellion and selfishness and pride, and the list goes on and on. And if any of us are so deluded to think that's not who we are, well, now's the time to snap out of that delusion. Each one of us is a sinner. But praise God, of first importance, the first part of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ has died for our sins. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. 
He didn't go hide in a corner for a couple of days. He died. He died. What does Paul say next about the gospel? In verse 4, he says, and he was buried. Fainted. You don't bury people who are still kind of alive. You bury people who are dead. Christ died and he was buried. And then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now there's more, of course, that can be added to that. But that is the heart of the gospel. Paul gives an incredible, incredible summary of the gospel for us right here. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose. By that powerful, brief message, each one of us can be saved. If we choose to receive it. If we choose to stand on it. And if we choose to hold on to it, no one can hold on to this message for you. Only you can hold on to the gospel for yourself. You can't hold on to it for me. Only I can make the choice to receive it, to stand on it, and to hold on to it. That's the incredible power of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Replace that. Jesus Christ died He died for me. And I'm a wretch. Some of you know me, some of you know that. But he died for me. And he died for you. And you can choose to believe that. You can choose to receive that. You can choose to stand on that. You can choose to hold on to that. And I pray that each one of us does. I pray that each one of us does. But then what does he go on to say? He goes on to say in verse 5, and he appeared, the NIV kind of helps us out here. It says, and he appeared to Peter. But actually, that's not what the Apostle Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul wrote that he appeared to Cephas. But the NIV authors, or the NIV translators, excuse me, realized that most of us wouldn't know who Cephas was. It actually was the preferred way that Paul referred to the Apostle Peter. But what does, what does Cephas mean? Now, in English, it looks like you might pronounce it Cephas. It's C-E-P-H-A-S. But it actually comes from the Aramaic word Kepha. And the Aramaic word Kepha means rock. So now, probably some of us are seeing the connection. Remember, Jesus changed the name of one of his disciples. There was a disciple named Simon, who was the brother of Andrew. But Jesus said, I no longer call you Simon, I call you Peter, or in the Aramaic, I call you Kephas, which means rock. We can see that briefly accounted in John chapter 1, verse 42. We're not going to take the time to turn there. You can jot that down or turn to it on your own. But in John 1, 42, the apostle John records for us Peter being named 
kephas by Jesus. So in the rest of the passage that we read, the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about some of the people to whom the risen Christ appeared. And so really, what I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about is the power of the risen Christ to change us. The power of the risen Christ to change us. Because that is absolutely what the resurrected Savior of the universe has the power to do. He has the power to transform us. He has the power to change us. And in this list that the Apostle Paul gives us in verses 5 to 9, we see just how incredibly dramatic some of the individuals were changed when the risen Christ appeared to them. So let's take a couple minutes just to consider Cephas. So we know that he was an incredibly zealous guy. We know that he was very enthusiastic, that he was one of the more vocal among the 12. We know that he spoke up, that he began to grasp things. Remember, it was he that declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, absolutely, and this has been revealed to you. So for a lot of us, Cephas is one of these guys that we can really resonate with, that we can really get excited about. But of course, we know that as Jesus is betrayed and as Jesus is arrested, Cephas is right there. And he has an opportunity. He has an opportunity to identify himself with Jesus. Many of us every day have an opportunity to identify ourselves with Jesus. And for many of us, that's very intimidating. For many of us, we get very, very intimidated when we have an opportunity to identify ourselves with Jesus. And I'm the biggest chicken I know. Cephas had an opportunity to identify himself with Jesus, but not when Jesus was doing well. Not when Jesus was pe preaching an incredible message. Not when Jesus was performing incredible miracles. Not when the crowds were amazed and loving him and following him. He had an opportunity to identify himself with Jesus when Jesus had just been arrested when the crowds, in fact, had come against him with swords and clubs and other weapons, when his own people, the Jews, were ready to have him killed, at that moment, Cephas had an opportunity to identify himself with Jesus. And not just one opportunity, not just two opportunities, but three opportunities. And each time that he had an opportunity to identify himself with Jesus, he failed. He said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to do with that guy. And of course, we know the rest of the story. As he denies him for a third time, the rooster crows. Peter remembers that Jesus had told him he was going to do this. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. This was Cephas. Initially a zealous follower. Initially very, very determined 
He even said, Jesus, I'm willing to be arrested with you. I'm willing to die with you. But when the pressure came, when the pressure came and when he was given an opportunity just simply to say, I know Jesus, he failed. And he failed three times. So what happens? What happens? Well, what happens is he meets the risen Christ. We don't know for sure what account the Apostle Paul is referring to. In Luke 24, there's just one verse that says, and he has appeared also to Simon. So we don't know for sure what account that the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says, and he appeared to Cephas. But what we do know is after the risen Christ appeared to him, he was a completely transformed individual. Because in Acts chapter 2, in the middle of the temple, one of the most public places in Jerusalem, in front of not only a crowd of Jerusalemites, but from pilgrims all over the Roman Empire, he stood up and he identified himself with Jesus. He was no longer ashamed. He was no longer afraid. He was taking the lead in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What had changed him? What had changed him? He had met the risen Christ. Jesus, up from the grave, appeared to Cephas, and it completely transformed his life. And the opening chapters of the book of Acts, not just Acts chapter 2, are filled with accounts of his boldness, of his courage, of his uncompromising commitment to the Lord. A life transformed when he encountered the risen Christ. Who is mentioned after Cephas? Verse 5, it says, and he appeared then to the twelve. Well, of course, who are the 12? Well, Cephas was one of the 12. Remember, Jesus had many, many, many disciples. He had many, many, many followers. But 12 of them, he particularly chose. And they were also designated apostles. So Cephas or Peter was among those 12. But the risen Christ didn't just appear to Cephas. He appeared to all of the 12. Now, we know that not only did Peter fail him on the night of his betrayal. We know, of course, that Judas Iscariot betrayed him and failed him. And what about the rest? What about the other ten? How did they do? Well, we're not given a lot of details, but we're given a little bit. Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 50. We're just going to read one verse because we're looking now at the others. Not just Peter, but the others. How did they do? It says, as Jesus was being arrested, it says in verse 50 of Mark chapter 14, then everyone deserted him and fled. His closest followers, again, an opportunity to identify themselves with him. An opportunity to declare that I'm his follower. No matter what happens, I'm going to stick with him. It says that all of them fled. So just like 
Peter in their moment of testing, they fell short. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Jesus has risen, but he hasn't yet appeared to the 12. So in John chapter 20, again, just one verse we're going to read. John chapter 20, verse 19. How were they doing? How were they doing before the risen Christ appeared to them? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews. So Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been crucified. And the disciples do not yet realize that he is risen from the dead. So what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding. They're scared. They're saying, am I going to be next? Are we going to be next? But what happens? Well, we read the rest of that verse. On that evening, behind locked doors, trembling in fear, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The risen Christ had appeared to them. The risen Christ had appeared to them. And for that moment on, how did they live their lives? From that moment on, how did they live their lives? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Just a couple of verses to see the incredible transformation that took place. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. A lot of the opening chapters of Acts deal with Peter and John in particular, but here it just simply mentions the apostles. And we don't know how many of them were involved. But look at what was now their attitude. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. It says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. This is the Jewish authorities now flogging the apostles simply because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Called them in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, how did the apostles respond to that? How dare they do that? How rude, how inconsiderate. Boy, we're going to get them. Is that how they responded? Well, that's how our culture would have responded. That's how our culture would have responded. But the apostles had met the risen Christ. And the risen Christ had transformed them. So how do they respond to being beaten, to being flogged simply for talking about Jesus? Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's the power of the risen Christ. That's the power of the risen Christ. If he can take a group of guys that were cowering in fear, that were hiding behind locked doors, and make them into a group of individuals who were rejoicing when they were beaten. Rejoicing when they were beaten because their Savior had considered them worthy to suffer for his name. That's the power of the risen Christ.
That's the power of the risen Christ. When we meet him, when we encounter him, nothing in our life is left unchanged. Nothing in our life is left unchanged. That's the power of the risen Lord. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul now refers to a group of 500. Again, we're not sure what specific incident he's talking about. You know, one of the things that is absolutely important for us to remember, everything that we need to know is recorded in Scripture, but that doesn't mean everything that happened is recorded in Scripture. At the end of the Gospel of John, the, Gospel, the, the, the Apostle John says, look, Jesus did many, many, many other things that are not recorded in this book. And I suppose that if all of them were to be written down, the whole world couldn't contain all the books that would be written. So the Scripture always tells us everything we need to know. It doesn't necessarily always tell us everything. So at some point, Jesus appeared to a group of 500. That's not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. He appeared to a group of 500. And the Apostle Paul says many of them are still alive. So one of the things that the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, there are many eyewitnesses still living who met the risen Christ. There are many eyewitnesses still living who met the risen Christ. But then going on in verse 7, it says, And then the risen Christ appeared to James. Well, James, in a lot of ways, is like Mary. Because there are a lot of James in the New Testament. Just like there are a lot of Marys in the New Testament. And we're not even going to begin to try to tackle all of the Marys this morning. I myself would get confused. And we're only going to simply try to understand which James was the Apostle Paul referring to. Well, there were two James that were apostles. There were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So that's one of the James. There was actually another James that was one of the twelve. James, the son of Alphaeus. And even keeping the twelve apostles straight is confusing because there were two Simons and there were two Judases and there were two James. So two of the James that the New Testament mentions were apostles. James, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But he's already said, the Apostle Paul has already said that the risen Christ appeared to the twelve. So he's probably not referring to either of them. There's another James that's mentioned that's actually the father of Judas, the apostle, who wasn't the Judas that betrayed Jesus. If you're starting to get confused, that's totally okay. The only reason I'm able to say this is because I memorized it yesterday. You ask me tomorrow and I'll be, I know there's a lot of James, but I forget which James is which. So probably not him. The father of Judas, Judas a faithful, one of the twelve. Judas possibly one of the twelve that we just read, who was rejoicing after he was beaten because he was worthy to be suffering for the name of Christ. But probably not him. There's another James that's the son of Mary in Clopas. And we're not quite sure who that is because a lot of people will think that that's actually James, the son of Alphaeus. Clopas is another name for Alphaeus, okay? You're getting the picture. It's a little confusing. But I think the reason why the Apostle Paul is singling this James out is probably because this is the James The brother of Jesus. You know, after Jesus was born, the scriptures tell us that Mary and Joseph had many, many, many more children. Jesus had many brothers and sisters. In fact, 
in the Gospel of Mark, we are told the names of Jesus' four brothers, James and Joseph and Judah and Simon. Probably the reason why the Apostle Paul is singling James out is because this was more than likely the brother of Jesus. Now, a lot of us may think, well, of course, Jesus' brothers must have believed in him. I mean, they grew up with him. They saw his incredible character. They saw all the things that he didn't do as a boy, not sinning, not getting in trouble. Certainly his brothers from the get-go must have believed in him. Well, in fact, the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. Again, we're not going to read the whole passage, but let's just turn quickly to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is somewhere in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry. There are references in the Gospels made to Jesus' brothers and sisters, and of course to Jesus' mother as well. But in John chapter 7, a lot of the Jews are going up to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And his brothers are saying, come on, Jesus, you go up as well. Go up and reveal yourself to your disciples because, you know, that's what teachers do. That's what prophets do. That's what you should do. And initially you might say, yeah, you see, his brothers were really pulling for him. His brothers really wanted the world to see that he was the Messiah. But look at John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. And I imagine that it maybe went something like this. Yeah, big brother thinks he's the Messiah. Yeah, big brother thinks he's the savior of the world, whatever. That guy is so full of himself. We grew up with him, we know what he's like. Really, really Jesus, seriously, the savior of the world. Now that's a huge gap filling there. But I imagine that was part of the attitude. That was part of the attitude. And we're all in a family one way or another. And we know what it's like to kind of look with a tilted head at a member of our family when they say something, yeah, yeah right, yeah, whatever, I know you. Even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. Didn't believe in him. They, in fact, if you read the entirety of this opening section of, of, of John chapter 7, they were really mocking him. They were mocking him. They were like, yeah, Jesus, go up. Go up, yeah, show yourself. Show yourself, Jesus, come on. And of course, Jesus' response was, you know, every time is right for you. My time has not come yet. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to do what my Father wants me to do. So even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. But then something happened. The risen Christ appeared to him. James, it's me. And James was a life forever transformed. Once his brothers saw him risen from the dead, he was a life and they were lives forever transformed. In Acts chapter 15, 
the most significant church in the early church was the church in Jerusalem. They had an incredibly difficult decision to make. Gentiles are accepting Jesus all over the Roman Empire. What do we do with them? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jews first? The early church was completely perplexed. They never thought salvation was for anyone other than the Jews. But now it was spreading like wildfire throughout the Gentile Roman Empire. And a couple of relatively unknown individuals, Paul and Barnabas, came to the Jerusalem Council. And they said, look, you're not going to believe what's happening. Gentiles are putting their faith in Jesus everywhere. What do we do? We do not believe that they have to be circumcised. We do not believe that they have to become Jews first. What do we do? And in that most significant early church council, in that most significant expression of the early church, the church in Jerusalem, who took the lead? Who took the lead? James, the brother of Jesus. The one who initially mocked him. The one who initially didn't even believe in him. Is now taking the lead in one of the most significant decisions of the early church. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul refers to James as one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And as far as we know, this is the James that wrote the book of James. And by the way, Jude was probably also written by Jesus' brother, Jude or Judas. Lives completely transformed. But what had happened? What had happened? What had changed James from a mocker and a doubter, from an unbeliever, to one taking the lead, to one writing a book of the scriptures, to one considered a pillar in the early church? Well, simply put, what had happened is the risen Christ had appeared to him. The risen Christ had appeared to him. It wasn't that he went to seminary. It wasn't that he tried really hard. It wasn't that he did all the right things. It wasn't that he kept the law of Moses. It wasn't that. It simply was the fact that the risen Christ appeared to him. When Jesus shows up in your life, everything changes. Everything changes. When Jesus shows up in your life, everything changes. Cephas completely transformed. The 12, completely transformed. James, completely transformed. And the last one, and understandably so, Paul mentions himself last. Verse 8, he says, And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Another way of possibly understanding that is one who was miscarried. Because the Apostle Paul was always so acutely aware of who he was before the risen Christ appeared to him. And he says it in verse 9. He says, I persecuted the church. I persecuted the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we won't turn there. The first martyr of the early church was Stephen. Who was standing there giving approval to the stoning of death of an individual who had simply told people about the love of Jesus Christ. Saul. Saul. He hated the church. He mocked the church. He actually thought he was doing God a favor by undermining the church. 
He thought, the more Christians I throw in jail, the more Christians that I oppose, the more Christians that I give a hard time to, I'm doing God a favor. Well, at that time, what he didn't understand is the church is Jesus' bride. And yes, we are full of warts and wrinkles and problems and difficulties, but we are still his bride. And Jesus will always defend tenaciously his church because that is what we are. We are his. We are not perfect. We are not perfect, but we are his. And so Saul, thinking that he was doing the Lord a favor by persecuting the church, attacking the church, throwing Christians in jail, agreeing to them being stoned to death, he was on his way to Damascus with letters in his hand from the Jewish authorities with the power to arrest Christians in Damascus. And what happened? Acts chapter 9, what happened? The risen Christ. The risen Christ appeared to him. And he was a life forever transformed. He would never be the same man. In fact, now he would become the church's strongest advocate. He would travel throughout the entire Roman Empire preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he went. He would suffer incredible physical persecution, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, flogged, and he would consider it all a privilege to be identified with his Savior. Inspired by the Spirit, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And everywhere he went, he planted churches and preached the gospel. This, the man who hated the church, the man who persecuted the church, the man who thought he was doing God a favor by giving the church grief, this was a man completely and totally transformed. And what had happened? He simply had met the risen Christ. He simply had met the risen Christ. So let me just conclude. I appreciate you sharing with me this time. But you know, the risen Christ is not done appearing to people. It's not just something for the Bible. It's not just something for the ancient world. It's not just something for back then. The risen Christ is still appearing. The risen Christ is still showing up. The risen Christ is still saying, here I am. Here I am. And for every one of us who humble ourselves before him, every one of us who receive him, who receive what he's offering us, our lives will be changed. You know, and the truth of it is, I, you guys know me, I, I'm not a guy that loves change. In fact, change usually scares me a lot and intimidates me a lot. And I try to hold on very tightly to things as they are because I don't want things to change. And so sometimes I keep Jesus at arm's length. Because I know if I let him get close, he's going to change me.
He loves me. But he loves me enough to change me. Maybe some of you are holding Jesus at arm's length because you know if you let him get close, he's going to change you. And you don't want that. But he's incredibly patient. And he's incredibly loving. And whatever change he's going to make in me, whatever change he's going to make in you, is always, always, always his best. Because that's who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us this time together just to consider the glory of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And I pray, Lord God, for each one of us, myself included, that we would receive that, that we would stand firm in that, that we would hold tightly to it. And I pray, Father God, more than anything else, that each one of us would walk away from this time together today just incredibly, incredibly encouraged, incredibly, incredibly encouraged, because Jesus Christ, you are still appearing. You are still appearing. And if we let you, Lord, you are appearing to each one of us. And Father, I just want to pray for myself. I'm not going to pray for anyone else. I pray for myself, Lord God. I pray that you would forgive me for the times I've not wanted to change, for holding you at arm's length, Forgive me for that, Lord. And may I allow you to come close. And may I allow you to do whatever work needs to be done in my heart. Because, Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you love us. But thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for rising. Thank you for still appearing to each one of us. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.